Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm here, your host Simon, and we're doing part two of the Jennings 8. So I'll just say right at the top here, if you haven't seen the Jennings 8 part one, this is all going to be very confusing. I know in podcasts it's entirely normal to do like one and two parters and everything flows nicely in a line. But because this is also a YouTube show where part one and part two is much less of a common thing and... I could put in a playlist or anything, but people don't really discover videos that way, so it's a bit pointless. Yo, if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure that you stop watching it. I mean, don't stop watching it if you've seen part one, but if you haven't seen part one, do that first. Otherwise, you're going to be like, what is going on? I'm very confused. The reason we broke it up is because the first one got insanely long. This one's also insanely long. Uh, and it's just honestly a lot to get into. Uh, I assume Callum's going to give us a little summation of what happened last time. Because honestly, even though I recorded this about 20, the first one about 20 minutes before I recorded the second one, I'm still like, I could really use a recap of, of what happens. If you're new here, uh, Callum is the writer for this show. He has written me a big old script which i have in front of me i'm gonna read it i'm gonna add some thoughts if i have any i often do some people say it even gets a bit rambly <laughs> that that's absolutely fair absolutely fair i'll try to cut it down although but then i say i'll try to cut it down and people are like no simon don't do it the rambles are nice it's uh it's yeah it's complicated and then afterwards jen oh no jen are you all right jen speak to me our video editor is going to add in, and, and, and audio editor, of course, for the podcast version, is going to add in some music and some images for everybody to enjoy. And, well, with that long, waffling intro out of the way, let's get into it. Welcome back to Jennings, Louisiana, the site of eight connected murders from 2005 to 2009, a hotbed of crack and prostitution. And as we've discovered at the end of part one, a town plagued by persistent scandals of police misconduct and corruption. Yes, it turns out the police, uh, I remember from the first one, because it was 20 minutes ago, the police are super incompetent. They had like a crime solving rate of about 7%. And also, uh, they were, it seemed to be a lot of corruption. So it's either they were or corrupt. So uh, both not good options. When we left off, Ethan Brown had just discovered the lead investigator, Warren Gary, purchased a truck involved in one of the murders, allegedly for the sole purpose of scrubbing it clean of evidence. If it was intentional, that's an absolutely terrifying prospect, and if unintentional, it's a glaringly stupid thing to do. Yeah, he bought like a truck off a witness, or like a, uh, not a witness, a potential uh, criminal. It's like, dude, not smart, not smart. And then he was like, yeah, he yeah, scrubbed it down real hard. <laughs> This was front-page news in town once the Louisiana Ethics Committee got their hands on Gary, but all things considered, it wasn't a particularly surprising headline at all. In fact, I'd be surprised if the local journalists didn't already have their templates already set up for a story just like this. They'd been covering regular corruption scandals for about two decades already. I know it sounds like a super naive thing to say, and people are going to be like, Oh, Simon, please. But wouldn't it be nice? In a country like America, which, you know, for all of its faults is, uh, you know, I feel like, <laughs> I want to say, I don't know, I've been to countries where there's like police corruption and it's blatant. And it's like, yeah, 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 you get pulled over, you can just bribe the policeman and he will just let you on your way with no problems whatsoever. Just bribery is absolutely a thing at every level. Whereas in the US, I'm like, the idea of... 
maybe i'll just use the uk as an example the idea of getting pulled over by a policeman and offer like for speeding or whatever and offering him a bribe is just absurd to me the idea that this sort of corruption actually would happen i'd just be like he'd be like what are you doing mate are you actually crazy just take the bloody fine because police don't want to do that because they'll lose their pension and and i guess it's just a bit naive to think but i'd like it not to be naive to think this but in 2009 in a country like the united states like super democratic big like super developed arguably the most developed in some ways in some ways not countries that there would be not so much police corruption it would be nice like really come on please According to Ethan Brown, the problem of corruption in Jennings stretches back to the 70s, when the drug scene in Louisiana underwent a boom. Street drugs were making their way to New Orleans en masse pretty soon. Some cots got tired of busting filthy rich smugglers and decided to line their own pockets as well. And that's how you end up with the police department, which has a longer rap sheet than half of the criminals they arrested. Let's do a bit of naming and shaming, shall we? Get your notepad ready, because the web of dodgy dealings is vast, and plenty of players in the Jennings 8 case are wrapped up in it. What Thin Blue Line we begin in 1990, when two balaclava-clad burglars broke into the Jeff Davis Sheriff's Office. After prying open the metal mesh door to the treasure trove of illicit goods inside, they managed to lift 300 pounds of confiscated weed out of evidence. Holy shit, that's a lot of ganja. Depending on the quality, that could have been anywhere from $75,000 to hundreds of thousands of dollars in value at the time. Or if you're smoking that American Beauty shit. What was it called? I don't even remember. It was some scientific, like, super weed that that'd be worth millions. But the burglars never got to cash in. They were caught soon after. During interrogation, one of them revealed the alleged masterminds behind the heists. Everyone's favorite pimp who's totally not a pimp, Frankie Richard, and Chief Deputy Sheriff Ted Gary. Sounds like the deputy might have given the tip off to Frankie after a big bust, and he set a couple of his goons on the job, but nothing ever came of those accusations. Otherwise, yeah, 7% conviction rate, remember? And it's like, when it's your mates, it's probably even lower. Other officers were more direct when pilfering from the evidence rooms. For example, Detective Donald Lucky Lachouche of Calcio Parish allegedly got sticky in the mid-90s, handling handing out confiscated drugs to suspects. What are you doing? And the depravity of this boy in blue wasn't limited to using the evidence room as an adult pick and mix in 1990. I mean, definitely illegal and wrong, but there's bound to be some really cool in the evidence room right like there's gonna be just piles of money from drug busts 300 pounds of weed tons of coke loads of guns i don't know whatever the police have got there's gonna be some cool stuff in there you're gonna be like i shouldn't steal from the evidence locker but everyone else is doing it aren't they let's get come on come on it's just 300 pounds of weed it's not a big deal who's gonna get in trouble who's gonna know in 1997, he was accused of child molestation against his own kid, holy shit, and sexual assault against his girlfriend, but was never prosecuted. He ended up moving to Jennings a few years later and joins the local PD, rising to the rank of chief. Well, this is complicated, because one, if he's not guilty of either of those things, and it was just an accusation that turned out to be false, then carry on, continue with your career, everything's fine. But it sounds like that was, I mean, allegedly, maybe I, let's just move on, shall we? That's before I get into like getting Simon Sue territory. Putting that kind of greasy guy in a position of power is allegedly greasy guy, Callum, allegedly greasy. 
is a rarely a good idea, and the results were painfully predictable. While serving as chief, Lachoche forced a female officer to take a video of herself getting her nipples pierced and gleefully shared it around the office. Mate, that is weird. That's just weird. Why are you so weird? The chief's conduct gave the green light for everyone underneath him to act like a bunch of animals as well. Male officers would routinely harass female cops and then threaten them with violence and sexual assault. Holy sh**. In 2003, eight of these women filed civil suits at the federal level against the sheriff. Good. Poor old Delouche. I don't think there's anything poor old about Delouche. He sounds like an absolute scumbucket. He then had to face up to the consequences of his behavior at a time when his alleged pedophilia was making the headlines again. His ex-wife made fresh allegations during a custody dispute, including that he filmed some sexual acts with a family dog. So on a scale of good cop to bad cop, where exactly does this kind of behavior rank? You're the problem. You're the f***ing problem. You f Dr. White, onking, jam, rag, onking. Well, I have to say, like, uh, sexual behavior with your dog, it's got nothing to do with you being a good cop or a bad cop. It's just got to do with you being a piece of person, which probably does relate somehow to your profession, doesn't it? It's a bad cop. No, it does. It does totally relate. I don't know why I'm trying. Why am I defending this guy's copping? He's a cop and a horrible person, allegedly. Wait, was any of this stuff proven? Then I can remove all of those allegedlies that I just said. Jennings' populace wasn't exactly thrilled with the idea of a canine molesting frat bro keeping them safe, so Zalouche was forced to resign as police chief amid the scandal. However, he's never actually fired and he wasn't barred from serving in the future. After the attention died down, he popped up again in another parish with a clean start. Oh my god, why? Why hiring this guy? But also I have to keep all those allegedlies in. Also, in a custody battle, his wife could say stuff that's not true to give him, like, a tiny bit of credit that, I mean, but bro, bro, smoke where there's fire. Smoke where there's fire. Naughty sheriffs. At this point, the cops are starting to look very much like the bad guys of this story. The idea of collusion between the cops and the drug trade looks a lot more likely in light of all of this, and obviously not all of them were at it, but a hell of a lot of them were. In fact, even the sheriff himself was involved more than one of them. Oh, brilliant. And I mean, this is exactly it. We talk about the, the guy, the, the, the alleged guy with all the allegedlies, and how it's like his behavior of the nipple pissing just trickles down to the cops below him. It's like, yo, if the boss is acting like a dick, then everyone below him is also going to act like a dick. I remember I worked at a supermarket. Let's just say, because I've probably mentioned the name of the supermarket and people before. <laughs> Let's just say this isn't me. But there was a boss that was like, yeah, yeah, it's okay to like occasionally steal stuff from the bakery. And if you're here, no one can see what's going on. And then it's like, all right, well, dude, if you're going to steal stuff from the bakery, allegedly a lot of people underneath you are also going to steal from the bakery. And I'm pretty sure that we weren't supposed to be stealing all that stuff from the bakery. <laughs> But it's like any other boss, you wouldn't be doing it because you're like, you just, you, you look at what the boss does and that's what you do as someone who works under the boss. Especially if you have no ethics of your own. Like apparently I do. I mean, someone who isn't me because allegedly we'd eat a lot of stuff from the bakery. <laughs> By the way, those cookies that they make in the supermarket where they put the, it comes as like a frozen block of like this delicious chocolatey stuff that they put on the tray and then it kind of pancakes out into a cookie. That stuff frozen is intensely delicious. Not that I would know, because obviously I'd never steal anything from the bakery of the supermarket that I worked at. In 1993, Jeff Davis, parish sheriff, Dallas Cornier, found, nailed it, found himself the subject of a whopping indictment. 36 federal felonies relating to the embezzlement of public funds. He had apparently siphoned off $250,000 worth, worth about double that today, in order to buy himself guns, boots, and trucks. The result? 
A $10,000 fine and one year of probation. He's probably like, worth it. That is a return on investment. I'm l it's lucky I kept about 10 grand of that money ready for fines. For comparison, if a car thief in Jennings nicked a $25,000 ride, they'd be looking at a maximum of 20 years and a $50,000 fine under Louisiana law? I they better be nicking it with a bloody gun and shooting someone in the leg. 20 years? That's absurd. And that's one-tenth of the value stolen by the good sheriff, who should also be held to a higher standard because he's a cop goes to show that if you are the law then you don't need to worry about the law and as i said i wish this wasn't true in a in america come on and how about the shady sheriff's successor this was ricky edwards the guy in charge during the jennings eight murders he got himself in a spot of bother in 1996 when a hispanic couple filed a lawsuit against him in his office their complaint related to an illegal stop and search while driving down the i-10 carried out by one of his top deputies the tv show dateline launched an investigation at the time I know everyone's like, will know what Dateline is. I don't really know what Dateline is. It really does sound like a dating show, which, uh, given that it comes up in Casual Criminals a couple of times, fairly sure it's not that. Concluding that unconstitutionally seizing assets from Latino drivers was basically a part of the culture in Jeff Davis Parish. At the time, he was out of the office by the time Ethan Brown came to town with a seat on the Louisiana Sheriff's Association for his valiant service. Oh my god, these corrupt really do look after each other don't they allegedly sure a few people got murdered on his watch but sheriff edwards had his priorities straight had he not dedicated himself to the indiscriminate harassment of out-of-towners who knows what horrible fate would have befallen the people of jennings edwards was replaced in 2011 but the misconduct didn't end in jennings after his departure from office in 2013 city police chief johnny lassiter a man who in pictures appears to have a perfectly rectangular head it's really quite marvelous. Was <laughs> I gotta like this up? Perfectly rectangular head. Wait, I'm not really sure. I mean, he's a. I don't really know what a rectangular head is. He just looks like a bit of a larger man. And he was accused of malfeasance in office, obstruction of justice, injuring public records, and stealing drugs and cash from evidence. Holy sh**. The scandal first broke three years after the charges were brought and the chief stepped down. At this point, a state police audit revealed that the evidence manifest was short $4,500, $1,800 pills, 380 grams of cocaine, and a few pounds of weed. Oh my god, this guy was having a good time. Yes, it's terrible behavior for a cop, but I bet you would have loved an invite to his parties. And if you're wondering how long the come down from that much drugs, stolen drugs lasts, it's about five years. That's how long Lasseter got behind bars. Bear in mind the Louisiana Prison Service's newest inmate was the guy heading up the local police from 2006 to 2010 during the Jennings murders. <laughs> I have to say, I don't think there's ever a come down. Like, five years in prison seems fairly light for uh, that level of corruption and oh my god that's a lot of cocaine but also i think that's so much drugs that you never come down like you you just ride that high until you die probably of old age given how many how much drugs that is and while he may not have lifted every piece of the missing goods with his own two hands his complicity meant that a huge amount of drugs flowed right out of the police station and back onto the streets if your police department is technically one of the town's most successful drug distributors then your town has a real problem so where the hell were all those missing drugs going exactly i'll let you decide for yourself but let me take you to this moment to remind you of what a senior task force member told a witness back in 2007 don't worry about frankie because he works 
for me. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Now, just before we continue with today's episode of the podcast, let me give a quick hello to our fantastic sponsor. Hello Fresh, which gives you fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on Hello Fresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one kit. I mean, it's understandable. No one likes going to the grocery store. Cooking can be easy and fun. Like personally, I like cooking already. And uh, HelloFresh just make it even easier. Oh, honestly, just getting rid of the grocery store trips. The grocery store sucks. Or we call it a supermarket in Europe, and it sucks. No one likes going there. I, I mean, sometimes if you buy like sweets and stuff, but to like just get things you need, it's boring. Fall is busy, but Hello or Autumn, as we would say over the ponds. Uh, but HelloFresh recipes save time. You'd otherwise spend meal planning, shopping, and chopping so that you can get back to what matters. HelloFresh is family-friendly menu is a big win for back-to-school season with easy, delicious recipes for drama-free dinners. I mean, preach. I have one child who is old enough to eat meals with us, and it is it is a pain. Like, finding them, not with HelloFresh, obviously, just finding the things that they like to eat and kind of matching it up and making everything, like, work. It's tricky, and HelloFresh make it easy. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices to extra-special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy, with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. So, go to HelloFresh.com casual14 and use code casual14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com casual14 and use code casual14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Thank you, HelloFresh, for the wonderful sponsorship. And back to today's episode. The jailhouse brothel. Oh my god, how does this get worse? <laughs> the level of absurdity. It can't be real. Ethan Brown was pretty damn successful in drawing a link between the town's pimp overlord Frankie Richard and local law enforcement. On top of what you already know, multiple sources testified that he was very good buddies with several cops, and he was even the alleged accomplice of that deputy in the 1993 heist. So how about the murdered women? What was their experience with the police like? Well, predictably, it wasn't very pretty at all. While their colleagues over at the station were running an unregistered dispensary, <laughs> the jailers at Jeff Davis Parish Jail were dabbling in a bit of light human trafficking. I don't think there's any such thing as a light human trafficking. You're either a human trafficker at whatever level, or you're not. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's diet. <laughs> just less slightly less bad and i'm not saying that someone who's like a massive human trafficker is not worse than a minor human wait am i i think no i think they're both just pieces of shit so let's just stop okay why are you why do you do this i always like well it's not that bad it's like it's still human trafficking isn't it According to the Promise for Justice Initiative, Corrections Officer Allerate Frank was convicted of criminal malfeasance for taking bribes in exchange for access to female prisoners. At the time, some well-behaved or wealthy male inmates were allegedly allowed to walk around freely, and women who agreed to have sex with them were rewarded with special privileges. Wait, why are the women and the men in the same prison? <laughs> what is going on? That's not right. That shouldn't be. As part of the same extended scandal, it was revealed that Jefferson Davis Parish Deputy Eric Phillips raped multiple female jail inmates, while Deputy Jacqueline Varner arranged for a male inmate to rape two different female inmates. 
This is quite literally torture of the kind you hear about in war zones. To make matters worse, a jail nurse who raised concerns about the misconduct was fired for taking a stand. <laughs> this is sick. Later, at least six women came forward to report being raped by jailers and offered up to male inmates for a price. This is some third world Batman jail like that that jail i mean well at least that's just dudes but there's that jail in batman where he has to climb out of that well up to the sky that's the kind of what in america get your shit together what is this and any other country where this is happening you need to do better a lot better yeah many of the authority figures involved are now continuing their career in alternate jurisdictions to this day alarate frank even ran for police chief of Una city a few years ago you can still find his eyesore of a campaign website online wait alarate frank was convicted he was convicted of taking bribes in exchange for access to female prisoners so he was a jail pimp essentially alleged i mean no he was convicted for it not alleged maybe you shouldn't call him a pimp <laughs> but i mean but i mean allegedly <laughs> look up the definition of pimp for yourself and decide whether that definition fits this man and then he runs for chief of police after being a convicted alleged pimp in a jailhouse selling access to female prisoners this is pretty disgusting stuff and if you put these pretty simple pieces together, I'm pretty sure you can guess who some of the women trafficked in Jeff Davis jail were. The Jennings Eight all had regular brushes with the law, meaning several of them were victims of the prison prostitution operation. Arrest a woman for prostitution, then prostitute her in the jailhouse. Justice served another job well done. Warden Terry Geary was already was also reportedly involved in the trafficking, including uh, against the final victim in the Jennings Eight case, Nicole Geary. Is it just a coincidence that they have exactly the same unusual surname? weird they share the same last name oh there we go because they're cousins what the f which means the lawman allowed his own cousin to be bought and sold on his watch what the f man <laughs> this i don't understand how there are so many pages left to go because this is already just we just go from absurd to absurder and i don't understand how it can get more absurd than this level of insane corruption and then it turns out that in the local prison they're essentially running a prison brothel where the warden is selling his own cousin i don't go i don't i, I don't know what else could possibly be to come it's just insane and get this oh god <laughs> When task force investigator Warren Gary purchased the suspected murder truck from that inmate, it was allegedly Warden Geary who brokered the sale. To say things seem suspicious would now be a gross understatement. So, given this thick layer of muck on the hands of law enforcers of Jennings City and Jeff Davis Parish, is it possible that some people in power might have wanted to keep the women quiet by any means necessary? Yes, Callum. The answer is absolutely yes. That's quite an explosive claim, but not an uncommon one. In fact, several police officers were actually among the most promising suspects in the case. Good cop, bad cops. So, which of the roster of Jennings's finest were up there on the board of suspects? We'll start with a familiar name, Terry Geary. Back at the time of the murders, the warden of the jail was actually part of the law of a law enforcement power couple with then-wife officer Paula Geary. According to witnesses from the local drug scene interviewed by Ethan, the Geary's were regulars at Frankie Richards' house of fun off the clock. The ragged pimp never denied this fact, but clarified they never hung out at, his, at this house unless they came for police business or unless they was coming to buy crack in the middle of the night from somebody else. I didn't sell it, 
I smoked it. <laughs> like they were either here following up on a murder or, uh, or or buying crack. Yeah, or buying crack, but definitely not from me. I would never sell crack. <laughs> it's like, what are you up to, mate? Thanks for clearing that up, Frank. And another note is there's such a pandemic of boredom in Louisiana that everyone in the <laughs> gram is smoking crack. <laughs> Possibly. It seems. <laughs> I just imagine my grand smoking crack. It just seem, it seems to be pretty open secret that the couple were directly involved in the local drug scene, partly as users and potentially in some other capacities. When Ethan Brown linked up with the original renegade P.I. Kirk Menard, who had been working the case since 2008, he also had some interesting things to say about policewoman Paula. He alleged that it was she who hired the Jennings Eight as informants, and yes, managing snitches was part of her official responsibilities in the city PD. However, she denies ever having any female snitches on her payroll. Since the identity of informants is extremely sensitive information, there aren't any publicly accessible records to prove that one way or the other. Good, yeah. I mean, in a way, she could be like, yeah, I don't have any female. Even if she does, she should shut the f*** up and just be like, no, I don't have anyone. Don't have any- Just, no. Just because informants are really useful for cops who are not corrupt pieces of to catch criminals. Even if she wasn't the handler of the murdered women back then, she would be. It, she would eventually come under suspicion for an entirely different reason. Her personnel file is filled to the brim with complaints from her colleagues accusing her of all kinds of misconduct. It's just not really a surprise at, the, at this point, is it? And I bet they're all going to be really intense and weird. One detective is even absolutely certain that she actively leaked information about an ongoing investigation. Oh, God. But it was a classic Jennings case of sticky fingers that eventually brought about her downfall. Paula, a key Jennings 8 task force member, by the way, was in charge of turning over evidence after a raid on Frankie Richards' home in 2009. Sounds like she just didn't want to pay for a crack, doesn't it? This was as part of an unrelated investigation into a burglary syndicate that he was running with his mother. Oh, that's sweet, because of course he was. When Paula signed off on the inventory, $4,000 of stolen gear was missing. Was she to blame? Maybe, maybe not. Bear in mind that Jennings had another expert in evidence cataloging who also served on the evidence logging team in this case, automobile aficionado Warren Gary. He's the guy who bought the car, right? There's a lot of people. It's a, I'm, I'm keeping track so far. My big brain is working out. In the end, it was Paula who took the flak and ended up getting fired. She still rejects the accusations outright, claiming that she reported the missing goods as soon as she realized, but who knows if she's telling the truth. Either way, Frankie Boy is appreciative. He told Ethan, In fact, I thank her for doing that. If she had handled her business right, my mama would still be in jail. He's referring to the fact that the case eventually fell to pieces due to a flurry of misconduct in the department. Frankie and his mummy, dearest, walked away. Free. No wonder there's so much crime in this place, because everyone I said it last episode, because everyone's getting away with it. <laughs> and if they are not, you'll you'll probably get arrested and they'd find out that the police just want to get involved. It's crazy. Who would ever live here? You're just gonna be this terrible. A killer on the inside. There's clearly a reason to believe that Paula Guillory and her husband had connections to Frankie or even other criminal elements in the town. And once again, this means an integral Jennings 8 task force member could have had reason to actively impede the investigation. It's the sort of thing that could have gotten a purge from the team long ago. I mean, they're said to have gone to his house to buy crack, and Terry Guillory supposedly dabbled in the pimping profession himself at the jailhouse. Allegedly. That's what we call a catastrophic conflict of interest. So when the theory of a police officer or officers killing the woman for fun started doing the rounds, the disgraced Paula and her hubby were popular candidates. 
I've heard many rumors that me and Terry were serial killers, she said in an interview with the journalist. But perhaps that's a bit too much of a stretch. While Paula was undoubtedly a shitty police officer, neither she nor Terry's names come up in any of the original witness interview transcripts. However, the same can't be said for her one-time colleague, Sheriff's Deputy Danny Barry. Back when the task force was reporting zero new leads, much to the chagrin of the public, the new the interview transcripts were actually telling a very different story. David Barry was directly identified as a potential suspect by no less than three witnesses back in 2008 on the same day. This information was never made public at the time. And even if he wasn't a killer, he certainly had some explaining to do. The reports focused around the niche sexual interests of Barry and his wife, who had a strange idea of a good time. Ethan Brown lifted these quotes directly from the witness interviews back in November 2008. <laughs> He drove a small blue sports car. Barry would drop off his wife, Natalie, and she would get the girls. The couple would spike a drink and then take the girls back to the Barrys. Danny Barry had a room in his trailer that had chains hanging from the ceiling and set up so that a person could not see in or out of the room. Whoa. Did they just pick up some people, drug them, and then kind of put them in their sex trailer and rape them? What are you? That's intense. Yes, the couple allegedly cruised for women to drug and then bring them back to their track trailer sex park dungeon. Stay classy, Louisiana. Is it too much of a stretch to imagine that someone capable of drugging and raping women might graduate to murder? No, it's not a stretch. Plenty of people in town thought so. The idea that Danny and Natalie Barry might have ended their sessions by asphy asphyxiating the helpless women became one of the more popular rumors. But of course, this angle was never officially followed up on by the sheriff's department, at least not least as far as the public records indicate. Even if new evidence comes to light now, it's too late to prosecute. Danny passed away in 2010 in a tragic BDSM. No! <laughs> Oh, okay, no. <laughs> yeah, Callum goes on to say, only joking, it was a heart attack. Okay. So apparently, it was possible to go a full 12 years of the Jefferson Davis Sheriff's Department while regularly drugging and raping sex workers. What exactly would it take to have you booted out? It's unbelievable. Like, that he's getting away with that? It's like, oh yeah, well, we know what he's up to. That That's the popular rumor around town. We know that he's doing those murders. No, 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 he's just doing a bit of light rape. Dudes, get it together. We're about to circle back to the nitty-gritty of the Jennings 8 case and look at the incident which really blew the cover on the potential police involvement as early as 2007. This was when one officer discovered that perhaps the most dangerous thing you could do as a police officer in Jennings was to tell the truth. The Fall of Jesse Ewing None of what we just covered paints a particularly pleasant portrait of the Jennings PD or their superiors at the parish sheriff's department. Even the public were suspicious that the person who killed the woman, the women, might actually have been living off their tax dollars, someone directly involved in the investigation to find the killer. But it's worth noting that not every officer was involved in dodgy dealings. There were those on the force that actively reported the deeds of their colleagues, which must have felt like bashing your head against a brick wall over and over. One officer ended up losing his entire career as a result, which is insane considering everything the the other cops did, like 12 years of the weird trailer sex thing, allegedly, and not, not getting fired. Amazing. This is our good cop, Sergeant Jesse Ewing. He was an officer in the city police force back in 2007 and a key part of the early task force. Back then, they were still just investigating the Jennings Four. And that year, Sergeant Ewing received word that two women at the, down at the jail had important information to share about the killings. So he went down to the jail alone, armed with just a tape recorder, to conduct some interviews. It was actually the testimony of these two anonymous witnesses that revealed the Chevy Gate incident regarding Warren Gary and the murder of Kristen Lopez, which we ended 
part one with. Not only that, these two witnesses told our good cop that higher-ranking officers of the police were complicit in a cover-up of the facts all along. Ethan Brown got the chance to hear those tapes and wrote, They provide highly specific information about the murders of two of the prostitutes, Whitney Dubois and Kristen Gary Lopez, as well as local law enforcement's alleged role in covering up Frankie Richardson's role in at least one of the killings. Jesse Ewing was already suspicious of his colleagues at this point, probably because they were a roving horde of sex pests and thieves, so he decided to keep this new information on the down low. The rogue copper instead went to a local PI, most likely Kirk Menard, who forwarded copies to the FBI outpost in Lake Charles and the Louisiana Attorney General. The feds then rode into town on white stallions and arrested every single corrupt cop for misconduct and murder. This is absolutely going to be like Callum saying in a second, except that it absolutely didn't happen. And everyone lived happily ever after. Only joking, Ewing's gambit misfired horribly. The FBI and Attorney General actually ignored the content on the tapes and sent the copies right back to Jennings. Oh, God. No. More precisely, straight into the hands of the Jennings 8 task force. Jesse Ewing had breached proper procedure, and the insubordinate officer now found himself at the mercy of his superiors, who, as you know, were of dubious integrity. He screwed. Also, the guys, the Attorney General and the FBI people... Get, what the f guys? Come on. The moralistic sergeant was charged with malfeasance in office and dismissed from the force. To cap it all off, one of the witnesses he interviewed came forward with a sexual assault claim relating to the day of the interview. Obviously, if it's true, he's pretty much as scummy as the rest, but is it possible that a corrupt cop might have leaned on the woman to log a false claim and smear the reputation of a turncoat? She was in jail after all, and her life could have turned up pretty miserable if she never complied. Yeah, it's entirely possible. In fact, it seems extremely likely. Whether Ewing really was guilty of harassment or not, he was now blackballed from the profession after 20 years of service. He told Ethan Brown, I felt screwed for doing the right thing. This is what actually happens to maverick cops in real life. Rather than just hijacking helicopters and throwing villains off rooftops like in the movies, they just end up shunned and disgraced. Meanwhile, the bad eggs in our story somehow ended up with new jobs and squeaky clean records. The tapes. All in all, I'd say Sergeant Ewing's kamikaze mission wasn't in vain. After all, his efforts meant that those tapes were preserved for posterity rather than being accidentally damaged or misplaced. These tapes have never been released to the public. Only the police, the PI, and Ethan Brown have ever heard them. So when he published his online expose on the case back in 2014, this was the first time that the ins and outs of the accusations were exposed in depth. For the first time, the public had an insight into the final days of the two victims and, potentially, knowledge of exactly how they died. It begins with Tracy Chason, the local sex worker who reported the pimp Frankie Richard and his niece Hannah Corner to Hannah Connor to the police in part one, implicating herself in the process. The police weren't the only ones that she shared her story with. The anonymous speaker on one tape claims to have heard the full story from Chason herself, not only regarding the Lopez case from 2000 and March 2007, but the murder of Whitney Dubois two months later. The story goes that Chason, Dubois, Frankie Richard, and Hannah Connor were enjoying a bit of crack-enhanced bonding time as is apparently the custom down south. At some point, Frankie made sexual advances on Dubois, but she rejected him, and Frankie apparently doesn't handle rejection very well. Chazon said she witnessed firsthand as old Frankie's violent temper exploded. He began viciously beating Dubois. He got aggressive. He started fighting with her, and when she started fighting back, he got on top of her and started punching her. His niece soon joined in, battering the helpless woman to the point of unconsciousness. It was allegedly Hannah who ultimately ended the woman's life, holding the back of the head of victim number four and drowning her. The crime of violent, drugged-up fury. 
it doesn't sound like much of a stretch at all. Perhaps this was the event which ultimately encouraged Chasson to come forward. After all, who knew when Frankie would decide to turn his murderous rage on her? But as you already know, it wasn't the murder of Dubois that she reported. The second-hand story on the tape was eerily similar to the Chasson's official testimony entered into evidence in the Lopez case. Once again, Chasson claimed to have witnessed the killing firsthand, which unfolded much the same way as the other one. Her testimony was helped by the fact that the police already placed the victim with the scumbag suspects in the day leading up to the murder. The glob of syphilitic smegma known as Frankie Richard admitted that yes, uh, allegedly syphilitic smegma, <laughs> admitted that yes, he had been with Kristen Lopez. However, he claims they parted ways before her death. To hear him tell it, he had been staying with Lopez and Chasson in a room at the infamous Bordreau Inn for several days, but kicked them out. Quote, Kristen come give me a hug and said, Uncle Frankie, why you don't want me back your room? <laughs> this is not be me being unable to read, it's this guy being unable to speak. And I said, no, because you ha don't have no respect. You want to steal everything. <laughs> guy's a genius said the guy he once ran a burglary ring with his mum anyway Chasson corroborated frankie's story at first but in a tearful second interview the transcript tells a very different story ethan brown explained richard and connor had on another drug-addled night killed lopez in a fit of anger beating her severely by a levee near the petit jean canal on the outskirts of jennings and then drowning her why has everything got french names i don't know anything about louisiana I had no idea it was so French. Lots of people have French surnames that I'm sort of half pronouncing English and half pronouncing French because I don't know what to do. And then like the Petit Jean Canal is like Small Jean Canal, I think. Interesting. Both witnesses on the tapes reported the same story. One of them via Chasson and the other from Hannah Connor's drugged up confession. Two different sources with the details mostly intact between versions. Uh oh. That to me seems pretty damn telling, yet it appears as if these witnesses weren't actually called up when the cops were building their case against the pimp. Because of course they weren't. Because everyone's like, everyone's super corrupt. It's like, why would you bring forward two witnesses? You have both the same testimony, which corroborates each other. I mean, that would be too much like getting a closed case, wouldn't it, police? Wouldn't it? A brief breather. Okay, so after a quick dip in the dirty, dirty sewage water of Jennings' police corruption, we've gravitated right back towards the man at the center of it all. We've seen how Frankie's alleged ties to the police seem to have saved him on more than one occasion. Not only that, the series of scandals racking the town have shown how officers were absolutely integral to the Jennings 8 investigation and appeared to have vested interests in the local underworld. That means your choices are currently, and here's a list. A. Murdered for informing on the drug trade. B. Killed for fun by a sadistic cop. C. Killed in a drug-fueled rage by a pimp. D. Murdered for informing on jailhouse human trafficking. Or E. Something else entirely. I mean, all of these are pretty good options. I mean, they're all terrible options, but they all seem, you know, all of these are possible. I I don't know which is worse. I think anyone's involving the like the sadistic cop murdering is probably the worst. I kind of hope it's not. I don't know. I don't want to say they're all terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not casting a vote, but I will tell you this. On camera in 2018, Frankie Richards himself sided with the snitches get stitches theory, saying these girls lost their lives because they seen something, heard something, knew something that they was not supposed to know. He claims the deceased officer and sex dungeon owner Danny Barry was probably to blame. Oh, so he's voting for option B. I mean, well, he would, wouldn't he? 
So to recap, the police say it was probably Frankie. Frankie says it was probably the police. And, well, we still kind of think it might be both of them. The only question remaining is why. Yeah, this has been a long episode to figure out, like, why? What? Why is this person, why have these people been killed? What are they trying to hide? I'm gonna guess it's something to do with police corruption and drugs and this this nasty Frankie dude. The whistleblowers from the jailhouse brothel scandal. I forgot about the jailhouse brothel. <laughs> this episode's full of so much crazy in any other episode, the jailhouse brothel would be like the leading thing. But in this, it's just like another part of the craziness. Uh, the whistleblowers from the jailhouse brothel scandal weren't the same women as the Jennings Eight. And as far as I can find, those women haven't faced any fatal repercussions. And despite researching the case for many years, Ethan Brown doesn't make any direct accusations or argue for one strict interpretation. You kind of get the impression that he's just uncovered the tip of the iceberg, so even if he wanted to make a complete theory, he couldn't. But there's one last puzzle piece that he offers up, one final killing that might be the root of the entire Jennings 8 case. Take my hands and follow me. We're going to buy some crack. Okay. Oh my, Callum. I mean, <laughs> okay, let's see where this goes. A botched bust by Briggs Beckton. It's April the 19th, 2005, and you're starting to get that overwhelmingly sad feeling in your chest again. You're shaking, you're getting snappy, you've got a headache that feels like it'll split your skull down the middle. In short, you need some crack. ASAP. Well, don't worry, I've got your back. I know a guy at 610 Gallup Street down on the south side. We pick ourselves up from your favorite perch, the dumpsters out the back of Denny's, of course, and head towards the train tracks, walking in the dark. After a pleasant little stroll, we're standing a pleasant little stroll while you're absolutely got a splitting headache because you're desperate for crack. We're standing out front of a pretty rough-looking single-story house, a rickety wooden structure with peeling paint on the outside. And I bet we're gonna find our crack dealer in there! My guy opens the door, Harvey Bird Dog Burley. Don't ask me how he got the nickname, I have no idea. We're invited to take a seat in his dimly lit room, which is filled with that sweet chemical stench that you came for. There are a familiar few faces here tonight, about a dozen or so folk from around town. Some of them are chatting, some are lazing around on the shabby furniture, or sleeping among the mess of stained blankets and trash covering the floor. Ah, yes. The, uh, uh cracked and chic aesthetic i introduce you hello everyone this is my mate simon he loves crack <laughs> callum what is going on we've suddenly got on a first person crack buying adventure and i love it among your new friends are tracy chasson who i told you about Kristin lopez who would eventually become victim number three and alvin lewis the boyfriend of whitney dubois future number four there's also another local dealer that you should probably meet a gawky ponytail guy called leonard crochet people are coming and going every now and then so after a few minutes some prime real estate opens up on a nice comfy armchair in my mind this does it, it might look comfortable but it also looks stained and full of crack powder is crack a powder or does it come in like a, i know so little about crack i feel like crystal meth i know loads about because breaking bad was awesome but to get my knowledge up on crack i i feel i don't know what tv show has a lot of crack in it <laughs> gotta learn about that crack does it come like as a rock yeah crack rocks are a thing people smoke crack rocks in a little glass pipe right i i, I don't know <laughs> never done crack <laughs> good we get you sat down and sorted out with a lovely bit of crack from Bird Dog's stash. 
Suddenly, all is right in the world again. But just as we're starting to enjoy ourselves, dark forces are conspiring to spoil the party. Unbeknownst to us, an informant is currently calling the Jennings City PD to report ongoing drug activity at the crack house. You <laughs> found this drug activity at the crack house. Surprise! The cops are extra interested this time because Tracy Chasson is currently breaking the terms of her probation by just being there. Fast forward another 24 hours and you're still sinking into your nice comfy armchair, but you've burned through all my spare cash and once again we're out of crack. I'll add it to the tab. All we can do is curl up in the dark and try to keep the bad thoughts at bay. I feel like the only time you can sit in a chair for 24 hours is like when you're on a plane going to Australia, (laughs) I guess. Or you're on drugs in a crack house. It's approaching 10.20pm and with the curtains drawn, the room is now almost pitch black, save for the glow of a lamp in the kitchen. I'm cozily curled up in the fetal position, sleeping off that monster come down as best I can. But annoyingly, we're both about to experience the, mo- the most stressful alarm clock of our lives. No, that's not the throbbing in your head. It's the sound of a handheld battering ram smashing down the front door. Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, I think we're okay. You've smoked crack. You're not dealing crack. You're in a crack house. Hopefully, you don't have any crack on you. Fairly strong defense. I'm just hanging out in the crack house. Was I doing crack? Definitely not. What's this? Just a really bad hangover from beer. The flimsy thing caves in after just a few hits, and a group of cops flood through shouting, POLICE! and brandishing their guns. Which is just rude, really. There are people trying to sleep off a crack hangover in here. Everyone jolts and spins around as the cops swarm in. One of the first officers through the door is scanning around the room with his shotgun. Holy shit. The light blazing from the flashlight affixed to under the barrel is a bit sore on the eyes. But this isn't our first drug bust. So, after the initial fright, we don't panic. We've got this. That is until an officer with a shotgun aims his weapon at Leonard Crochet now, standing at the far end of the room, and he barks out, SHOW ME YOUR HANDS! A thunderous bang fills the room. Oh my god, they called Lenny. You bastard! <laughs> a good South Park reference there. You don't need me to tell you that. <laughs> the man on the other end of the 12 gauge that day was Louisiana probation and parole agent John Briggs Beckton. Holy I didn't realize parole agents did this kind of stuff. I thought parole agents was the dude in the suit who makes sure that you're not like running away and that you're having like a good post-prison life which is obviously not very effective and uh, but not the guy who's like wielding a shotgun and busting in the door to make sure that you're not west where you're not you're, you're somewhere where you're not supposed to be damn america you're scary as we're all being slapped in cuffs and loaded into a police van an ambulance is hurtling towards the house in an attempt to save the middle-aged crack slinger's life but by the time he's arrived by the time it arrives he's already dead yeah, he got shot with a bloody shotgun didn't he <laughs> Now John Briggs Beckton finds himself in a real predicament here. None of the people arrested that day corroborated his story in the interviews. Not a single person saw Crochet make the jerky movement towards his belt line that Beckton interpreted as a threat. Not even his fellow cops could confirm it. Really? That's where the cops draw the line? <laughs> What's more, the investigators were unable to locate any items in the immediate vicinity of Crochet's location in the residence which could have been construed as a weapon. In short, it seems likely that the jittery parole officer was acting on a panicked reflex or in the midst of some trigger-happy Call of Duty flashback. Thank God he snapped out of it before landing a five-kill streak and calling in the airstrike. <laughs> airstrike! 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 What are you up to, mate? You just did a drugs bust. There is, there's no air support. We're not at war. This is a crack house. It seems like he knew that it f***ed up right away. Just after shooting Crochet, he approached the dying man as he gurgled through his last breaths. Oh, s***. 
Becton muttered. According to one report, Crochet was then flipped onto his front and handcuffed, as if the buckshot in his chest wasn't enough to pacify him. It seems like Crochet's death was entirely preventable and unnecessary, and with no testimony backing up his version of events, surely Becton would be severely disciplined for his mistake. Right? I know. <laughs> You've already listened to, what, a good two hours of what has been going on in Jennings. This guy's not going to get punished at all. You know, you should probably go to prison for something like that, shooting an unarmed dude. I mean, maybe if it was an honest mistake, but there doesn't seem to be anything honest about the whole episode today. Two episode, two parter. Uh, I get the feeling he's just, he's probably going to get promoted or some shit. He's probably going to get made chief of police in another town after it, his record's forgotten. Uh, okay, let's move on. Of course not. What a surprise. He simply wasn't punished at all. In Becton's report, he wrote that the dealer then made a sudden movement with his hands towards his belt line. The parish grand jury took his word for it and accepted that he felt threatened enough to justify lethal force. This meant a no true bill ruling amounting to zero wrongdoing. Well, I mean, at least he didn't get promoted to chief of police. At least this is not good enough. The fallout. Where things get really interesting, though, is how Ethan Brown made this episode a kind of book of Genesis in the Jennings 8 story. After all, the very first victim showed up just one month after. Could it be that this one event started a cascade of corruption and violence that left eight women dead and potentially many more related parties? Frankie Richards suggested so. Quote, Most of them girls was at a raid. When that crochet boy got killed, most of the girls that are dead today were there that night. Wait, this is a un- this is a huge overreaction. Like, what? Why? Because they could testify differently, but the guys already got off. Isn't it like that double jeopardy thing? They can't try for the same crime twice. I think that's a thing, right? <laughs> Judging from movies. Um. So what's up? Like, what? I don't know. That's not entirely confirmed. All the people I just mentioned by name were listed on the official re- arrest record from that day. Uh, only one of the Jennings eight saw it firsthand. But who knows who came and went in the days leading up or when you were conked out on that armchair. All the other victims were certainly at least adjacent to the drama that unfolded that night. Things are heating up nicely, but I've got a question. Since the police clearly had the capability to clear the trigger-happy parole agent of any wrongdoing without the need for a scorched-earth massacre of local street criminals, why bother? Okay, good. I, th- I really thought I must have missed something. Because I'm like, that just seems like an unreasonable overreaction for something that the guy already got off on. He's like, well, I already got off on that crime. Crime. better kill all the witnesses <laughs> it's like mate that just sounds like a high risk activity for you to get involved in for very little upside well if you can believe it brown allegedly heard it was an act of retaliation he cites an anonymous source who told him that the snitch who reported the activity at the crack den later insinuated that leonard crochet had recently refused to traffic the crooked jennings pd officers drugs this snitch seems to believe that crochet's death was actually a planned hit okay yeah, that's totally reasonable, but does that mean we need to kill all the witnesses? Witnesses to what? They didn't know this secret plan, did they? Meaning that if this extraordinary claim is true, if the, this secret plan existed, if this extraordinary claim is true, the other victims could have been collateral damage, a bit of tidying up, which ended up getting out of control. Because after this incident, the murders and suspicious deaths started really racking up. It potentially became a game of witness whack-a-mole, killing witnesses to the first murder, then killing witnesses to that murder, and then that murder, and so on. Oh my god. Okay, I get it. So it just got out of control. <laughs> it's like just a chain reaction of murder and witnesses. That is so intense. This theory is supported by the fact that, according to some of the transcripts obtained by the journalist, some of the Jennings 8 were actually interviewed by the police about the murders that preceded their own. 
and nobody drew attention to the fact that witnesses with apparently privileged information about the killings were suspiciously dropping like flies. I feel, yeah, someone should have made that connection very early on. Apart from there's that 7% conviction rate, though, and that's why. Police just a bit shit in Jennings. Allegedly. Apart from the women themselves, there was also the death of our beloved dealer, Harvey Burley. He actually turned up dead shortly after telling a relative of Whitney Dubois that she was investigating her killing, getting closer to an answer. And of course, as the web of intrigue spread out, people who weren't part of the drug bust started mysteriously dying too. There's the case of Russell Carrier from Lafayette. He called the Jeff Davis Parish's sheriff office in, in September 2008 to report seeing three men walking out of the patch of woodland where the sixth victim was found soon after. There was a Mr. Mountain, a Mr. Ivory, and a Mr. Williams, associates Frankie Richards, the first of whom is also suspected in the Lopez case. That sounds like another key piece of testimony for a case of missing criminal conspiracy. Very promising. But unfortunately, it never made it to court. On October the 10th, tipster Russell Carrier decided to lie down on the train tracks and take his own life. Investigators never gave a reason for the man leaving the bar that day and ending up on the rail. Could happen to anyone, really. Who among us hasn't gone out for a nice public nap only to be bisected at the waist by a freight train? Holy sh**. I mean, like, killing yourself is a very morbid topic. But, like, by a train? Really? That's how you choose to go? Nah, maybe he was killed. Maybe he was murdered. I mean, it sounds like an effective way to murder your worst enemy rather than a way to choose to go. Another quick breather. Kind of necessary, especially slightly. Let's talk about the best suicide op. Great job, Simon. Well done. So now the picture is coming into clearer focus, even though it's still too complex to take it all in at once. Number one. We see people offering a hand in murder investigations suddenly turning up dead around Jennings. Number two. We know for a fact that some of the Jennings 8 had information about these deaths and other dodgy dealings. Number 3. They were all alleged police informants who would have had the established channels to relay that information to the task force. And 4. The task force and or associated agencies may have been infected with under underworld moles leaking information. As we mentioned at the very beginning, during the final days of Lopez's life, she was in a paranoid state. Her mother is quoted as saying, They were scared, them girls. I think she knew about it and was too scared to say. Now we have a better idea of what it might have been. Same with the mother of Nicole Geary, the last victim. She used to tell us all the time that it was the police killing the girls. She knew, she knew, she knew, and that's why they killed her. It seems likely that she's part of a chain and that everyone else was killed for the exact same reason, just for someone out to cover up someone else's murder. This is a crazy thing. Nicole even appeared to know she was next. Just days before her death, her mum asked her what kind of icing she wanted on her birthday cake. The 27th was just a few days away. Nicole replied, Mama, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to be here. And the same for Laconia Brown. Ethan uncovered a previously unreleased task force testimony from one of her friends, who said Laconia was worried about three murderous police officers who were killing witnesses. Her sister later revealed that the victim claimed to be investigating a murder with cop. The cop wanted to give her $500 to tell what happened. I think it was a cop that killed my sister. The accusations of police involvement were so ubiquitous that by 2009, Sheriff Edwards demanded that every single member of the task force be swabbed for DNA to silence what he called baseless rumors, aka directed accusations against specific dirty cops. According to baseless accusations, it's like, oh my god, have you seen your police force? 
According to Brown, it appears that they kept the results of those tests purely internal, which kind of defeats the entire purpose. Yeah, I'd be like, okay, well, yeah, it turns out that... I mean, why keep that internal unless you have something to hide? Right? The possibility remains then of a deep bloody conspiracy between crooked cops and underworld, underworld thugs lining each other's pockets and watching each other's backs. And given the explosive effect of Ethan Brown's investigation, those rumors will likely never die. The Book and Aftermath Brown went on to publish his findings on Medium in 2014, one of the most read true crime pieces on the web. He attributes its success to the premiere of True Detective Season 1 shortly before, which bears some striking similarities to the real-life case. The real story soared into the public consciousness on the back of that show's success, flooding Ethan Brown's inbox with interview requests. However, the article was met with mixed reviews in the town of Jennings itself. After his piece blew up, read by people from all over the world, Sheriff Ivy Woods, the new boss in Jeff Davis Parish as of 2011, responded with a counterpost on his officer's website that rejected the journalist's meddling. Quote, It is unfortunate out-of-town journalists are taking information and twisting it to support a fictional conspiracy theory to gain followers and sell a story. Well, I don't dispute the sheriff's office has had problems, but the past is the past. Dude, that is not, you can't just be like, well, the past the past. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's all sorts of crimes in the past that should probably be looked into. I mean, you, it's like, yeah, yeah, I murdered someone last week. Past is the past though, isn't it? Past is the past. <laughs> Holy shit. It's all one ghetto, man. Or in other words, yeah, sure, some of our dirty cops may have waged a campaign of terror against local prostitutes, but that was five years ago. Let it go, man. As a result of this backlash, Ethan's allies in the local paper cut off contact with him and he no longer felt safe in the small town. I'm not surprised, did he? Should he have ever felt safe in the small town? Ethan Brown is so brave. <laughs> like, I think I said it before. I'm too, like, I'm such a coward. I'd never do this. I'm <laughs> just like sitting here behind my microphone and reading about what Ethan Brown got up to. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Oh, God. I actually felt like I was being targeted by cops or sheriff's deputies to be killed or harassed or assaulted or whatever, and I found it terrifying. I'm not bloody surprised, mate. Whenever he drove out that way, every car following a little too close behind him started to look even more sinister. Every footstep approaching behind him was charged with a new anxiety. The words of the guard at Frankie Davis's seemed more pertinent than ever now. You're a bold-ass little man, dog. Don't get caught in Jeff Davis Parish at night. So he stayed away for a while. The Downfall of Congressman Bustani One day, Ethan received a call at his house in Louisiana. A publisher wanted to pick up his story for a fully-fledged book deal. The Medium article is long enough in itself, but to flesh out the pages of a bestseller, our hero needed to tie up some of the loose ends which have been stuck on his mind since bidding the town of Jennings farewell. And during his final research push, he discovered the perfect bit of marketing material that had catapulted the story of the Jennings 8 into the stratosphere. Remember that shady little hellhole of a motel which we visited at the start of our story, the Baudreau Inn? Well, a bit of digging into the title deeds revealed that the underworld of Jennings might have had associates far higher up the ladder than previously thought. He had a rumor that this one-stop shop of vice was secretly owned by people involved in politics. Oh my god, of course it was. <laughs> Oh my god, of course it was. A long time spent levying public record requests eventually revealed a name, Martin Geary. He was a staffer for a goddamn Louisiana congressman, Charles W. Bastani Jr. of Lafayette. 
40 miles east of Jennings. So what does a political field agent need with a CD motel come brothel in his portfolio? Well, in his expanded and updated version of the story from 2016, Ethan makes the unbelievably bold claim that the congressman himself was actually a semi-frequent customer. And the craziest part of all, he reportedly had sex with no less than three of the Jennings eight at one time. I'm just saying, Ethan is saying this. He's making these claims. All of this is just me saying what he's saying. And I mean, he probably threw plenty of allegedly's in there. And so, thusly, will I. Allegedly. If you're getting a bit of deja vu here, then it's probably because of that true detective connection from before. Near the end of the I've not seen True Detective actually. Near the end of the season, the fictional investigation ends up implicating a powerful state senator in a web of murder and deceit. Life wasn't imitating art. It was blatantly plagiarizing it. Sure, Bastani wasn't quite a senator, but he might have been if Ethan never dropped that career-ruining bombshell. The congressman was actually locked in a battle for a Senate seat when the book was released two years after the original article. At first, he tried to ignore the allegations, but later came out swinging with the defamation lawsuit. It's all total lies, and everyone, even John Kennedy, his political opponent, knows it. By this point, the damage was done. He lost the race and dropped the lawsuit shortly after. That's intense. Like, that is intense. This guy must be really pissed. Now, it's important to point out nobody is definitively saying the congressman ordered or had a hand in any of the violence. But it is a really bad look to even have your name mentioned in the same sentence. Yeah, this is a bit of a problem, though, because like we, can, you can think whatever you want about this guy's guilt and stuff. But if it turns out it was just a misunderstanding, which is possible, and this wasn't, you know, nothing so far, at least in the story, has like been proven in court of law. It's like, damn, if that turned out to be false, you ruin that dude's career, which is intense. And I'm not saying like journalists shouldn't be doing that and stuff based on their own evidence, because obviously it's different. But it's like, if there's false stuff, it's like, oh my god. <laughs> In the UK, our political scandals are usually far tamer. So what? Our Prime Minister once put his genitals in a pig's head. At least he doesn't associate with murderers. <laughs> then Callum's wearing brackets. Probably. Wait, did Boris Johnson put his testicles in a pig's mouth? I thought it was David Cameron. But they were both part of that club at whatever university they went to, right? Uh, where everyone's super posh and they do all these like they go to restaurants and trash them allegedly is that is that the bullying boys or uh, something like that i don't know i thought it was david cameron though allegedly where are they now Now, as we approach the 14-hour mark in the career casual criminal Jennings 8 saga, I've been here forever. Actually, you don't even know this, dear listener, but I took a break. I went home and came back the next day recording this episode. It's so bloody long. I, I, I wore the same shirt two days in a row because I knew how to make, it to make it match up. You're welcome, YouTube viewers. How's that for, like, dedication to continuity? I think this light in the background, this side was on though and i didn't switch it on my bad we've exhausted nearly every bit of intrigue and it's about time we packed up our sh and got the hell out of jennings all that's left to do is explore where exactly things stand now whatever conclusions you draw from ethan brown's investigation it's clear he's done a pretty damn good job dirty secrets have been laid bare and feathers have been thoroughly ruffled his crusade to solve the jennings eight murders got even more attention in 2019 with the release of the two-part documentary death in the bayou the jennings eight the current sheriff ivy woods agreed to be filmed for the piece and still denies that any officers involved with the task force 
Ross had anything to do with the killings. He maintains that Ethan Brown is an author of fiction stories who just wrote the book to make money and embarrass the people of southwest Louisiana. But in reality, the story basically tells itself there's so much muck accumulated around the city's controversy-plagued law enforcement that it's hard not to suspect that at least some of them knew what was happening. But to this day, every one of the Jennings 8 murders remains officially unsolved. The only fresh evidence I've been able to find is an article from June 2020 about three men murdered in Port Allen, roughly 100 miles east of Jennings from 2017 to 2019. We don't have time to get deep into all of those today, but suffice to say that they bear a striking resemblance to the story that we've just been wading through. According to H.R. Arledge of the West Side Journal, Police officers on the first case failed to find the first victim, Fatrow Queen's body, for hours after following the case because it was in a closet, a closet which had no doors. They then left some key evidence behind, like blood-stained clothing and a bullet casing, and they barely bothered conducting any interviews. The victim's mother thought they acted more like they already knew who did it. Consider the fact that Fatrow was rumored to be a federal informant and was also involved in the street-level drug trade and were almost telling the exact same story over and o- over again. That's why the writer Artledge starts with something old Frankie Richard said to him in an interview years prior. No serial killer got them young girls in Jennings. Then people responsible kill snitches up and down I-10 in Lake Charles, Baton Rouge, Hammond just all over. And therein lies the rest of the iceberg. What higher up players in the drug smuggling trade might be involved here who we'll never know about? And is the story of the Jennings 8 part of a wider one that has actually claimed far more victims over the years? Perhaps the real answers lie so deep in the conspiracy that we'll never even get a glimpse of the puppeteers that are really behind the whole affair. All we get is a brief window into the murky world of their dealings, the intersection of their illegal trade with law and order, and maybe even a glimpse of connections running right up into state government itself. I wouldn't be surprised at all if this story has a few rug pulls left up its sleeve. Yeah, this is definitely one. That, I mean, this is all so recent and stuff and still being investigated and still ongoing. I mean, that last article is from last year. This is being recorded in 2021. It's like, that's pretty intense. I think, I mean, we haven't ever done a follow-up Casual Criminalist episode because the show's so new, but I bet for some of these more modern ones, we could do, definitely do that. Wrap up. That brings us to the end of the story of the Jennings 8, for real this time. All in all, it's a patchwork of violent, drug-fueled episodes which form a confusing collage. But try your best to take it in all at once, and it's clear that there's some seriously dodgy dealing going on on the bayou. And for all the wild and wacky occurrences that we've covered, in the end it all comes down to eight untimely deaths and the families who were robbed by them. Ethan Brown has established himself as an advocate for these marginalized women and their unjustly diminished humanity. Even if their deaths have to go forever unsolved, at least they can be granted the dignity of some simple human empathy. The same should be expected by the thousands of people who find themselves in the same vulnerable circumstance today, exploited by pimps and dealers, arrested, then beaten and abused in jail cells as well. It takes more than a one-man journalistic crusade to break those painful cycles. Although as much as I preach peace and understanding, I am giving you a free pass to suspend all your sympathies regarding one individual, Mr. Frankie Richards. Whatever happened to that cretin in the end? Well, after speaking for the 2019 documentary, he decided to celebrate his big TV debut with a bit of overindulgence. Just days before the premiere, he suffered a heroin overdose at his home. The police soon swooped in to collect a hoard of prescription pills, crack, meth paraphernalia, and a woman who was apparently pimping at the time. But, you know, definitely not a pimp. 
right, Frankie? This was the first big arrest against the aging pimp in a while, probably signaling that his days of power and immunity were on the wane. The era came to a conclusive end on March the 22nd, 2020, when he died of natural causes at 64 years old. His online eulogy reads, Frankie liked to cook, eat, joke around, dogs, pit bulls, and muscle cars. Frankie loved spending his time with family and friends. Frankie was loved by many and will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. Very tasteful of them to leave pussy and crack off the list. Goodbye, old friends. You're probably pimping angels in heaven now. <laughs> Square brackets sheds a tear. <laughs> Callum. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy was a dick, though, wasn't he? Dismembered Appendices Number 1. While plenty of Jennings cops seem shady, Officer Phil Karam is the most infamous of all. In 2000, he made an off-duty emergency call from the house of a fellow cop, Ken Guidry. When the cops arrived, Officer Karam told them, I'd done them both, meaning he had killed Guidry and his wife, and then opened fire on his colleagues, killing one and injuring a second. Good lordy lord. Number 2. How the hell did Tracy Chasson come out unscathed from all of this? Well, apparently she was once threatened by Leonard Crochet's sister, who shouted, You're going to be number 9. And according to my own research, she was the victim of a probably unrelated tragedy. Her biological son was gunned down in a gangland execution at a music venue on Main Street in 2019. It's nice to see that Jennings is still Jennings. Oh my god. <laughs> Jennings. I never want to go there. I never want to hear of this town again. If I lived there, I would leave. Number three. Although perhaps we've been too harsh on the little town by portraying it as a super condensed pit of vice. In 2019, it was also ranked as Louisiana's seventh safest city. Are there, are there only seven cities in Louisiana? Because oh my god. That's either a testament to the town's progress or the general degradation of the rest of the state, we can't say for sure. Number 4. And last up, Ethan Brown published his original article on January the 31st, 2014. That exact same day, 27-year-old Lacey Font Font Fontenot Fontenant was found dead near Lake Arthur, also in Jeff Davis Parish. The sheriff refused to dub her the ninth in the sequence, despite the fact that she had close ties with many of the, of the original victims. Maybe we'll cover this one in part 36, scheduled for November next year. Yes, and with that we do at last at last come to the end of our double parter episode on the Jennings 8. Thank you so much for watching or listening, however you get this podcast. If you I mean this is a this is this was a big one. These things take some time to put together. I mean, they take me some time to read, and I'm sure Callum spends even more time than I do, and Jen as well. Uh, but if you uh, would like to say thank you, you can please do leave us a review for this podcast. That would be amazing on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. You can't do it on Spotify, but wherever you can, that'd be kind. Uh, also, if you're watching on YouTube, there's a like button for you to utilize below and a subscribe button as well. Utilize them both. And thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Woo, that was a beast! Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.